Open, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to read today's passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to actually start in verse 17 and read through verse 25. 1 Corinthians 1, 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Father, I pray that you'd give us what we need today. Feed us from your word. Help us to focus on you and on what you're saying. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> there are a couple of different ways to define or to interpret the word um, prophesy, the verb prophesy. Usually, when we think of the Old Testament prophets, um, those who have been given a specific message or burden or oracle from God that they must, they must tell to the people. Sometimes that message is either a warning or, or it's a promise of what God will do in the future. And so when we think of a prophet, we often think of someone who, who can tell us what God will do. And if we're, if we're honest, sometimes we think of someone who predicts the future. Hebrews chapter 1 defines it a little bit more simply by saying this, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. So the simple, uh, maybe the simplest definition of to prophesy is to speak the words of God to the people of God or whomever God directs. And so using that definition to speak the words of God, there's an equivalent to preaching. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. But I want you to see something specific. Turn over to the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, chapter 37. Ezekiel is one of the major prophets after Jeremiah, after Isaiah and Jeremiah. Ezekiel, chapter 37. I'm going to read this whole chapter. Ezekiel 37 says this, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? 
And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them. And the flesh had come upon them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you up from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you up from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land, and then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, I will do it, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, take a stick and write on it, for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him. Then take another stick and write on it, for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him. And join them to one another into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And when your people say to you, will you not tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I'm about to take the stick of Joseph that is in the hand of Ephraim and the, uh, and the tribes of Israel associated with him, and I will join it with the stick of Judah and make them one stick that they may be one in my hand. When the sticks on which you write are in your hand before their eyes, then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which, uh, among which they have gone, and I will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all, and they shall no longer be two nations, no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things, or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all of their backslidings in which they have sinned, and I will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd, They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant with peace with them covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. 
My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. Ezekiel chapter 37. Do you understand what that chapter is about? Jesus um, said it like this in John chapter 3. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How were those bones given new life? They heard the promises of God. They heard the commands of God. Because someone preached to them. But not only were they given new life, they were, they were assembled into an exceedingly great army, we're told. But not only were they assembled, they saw the kingdom of God. But not only did they see the kingdom of God, they saw a new David, a new king, Jesus, who will rule over them forever. And God will set his sanctuary, his dwelling place with them. And not only all of that, but he has also promised, I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is a graphic picture of the promise of the gospel and of salvation. Do you remember Ephesians chapter 2? Think of this, uh, Ezekiel 37. And remember that Ephesians chapter 2 starts like this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were very dry bones lying in the dust at the bottom of the valley. But then verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2 tells us this, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So put all of this together. What was the means by which God made us alive together with Christ? Well, Romans tells us, the faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Someone told you. Someone told you about Jesus. Someone told you to repent and believe. Someone told you to put your trust in Christ for salvation. Maybe it was many people over a long period of time. Maybe it was your parents who faithfully taught you God's word. Maybe they consistently brought you to a church where not only did your parents teach you God's word, but also you had, you had Sunday school teachers who week after week after week taught you God's word, taught you Bible lessons. Maybe you heard sermons as you came to church. Maybe you listened to someone preaching on the radio. Maybe you don't even remember, but somebody told you. But let me be clear. It wasn't Ezekiel that caused those dry bones to rattle. It, just like it wasn't Moses who really led the people of Israel out of their Egyptian slavery. It was God. Remember, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God spoke. God said to Ezekiel, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. This sounds foolish, doesn't it? 
It sounds ridiculous to our, to our rational human ears. First of all, bones, dry bones, don't grow sinews. They don't have muscle and flesh that comes back on them. They don't join themselves back together when they've been scattered in a battlefield. Dead people do not gain life again. That's foolish talk. Furthermore, if we are talking about a supernatural event, if we're talking about the Son of Man paying the penalty for our sin and then resurrecting, it seems as though if we are able to present the compelling historical evidence in a believable way, maybe we can persuade people to believe. I mean, people believe all kinds of foolish things these days. In other words, the persuasive abilities of the preacher ought to be enough. But it's not. Because even the demons believe that Christ rose from the dead. It's not enough. He has to give you new life. And he does this through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel, by the way, is a noun. It's a message to be proclaimed. It's a, it's a foolish message to the ears of the world. But the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so in this passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you can turn back there, um, there are four aspects of the foolishness of God that we're going to need to pay careful attention to this morning. So here's what they are. Let me give them to you right now. I know that some of you take notes. The foolishness of God. God is a foolish message. God is a foolish message. God is a foolish means of delivery. God is a foolish message, a foolish means of delivery. God uses foolish messengers. And God gives this foolish message to foolish recipients. He gives this foolish, foolish message to foolish recipients. Last week, as we looked at these same verses, we saw that the main emphasis of this passage here in 1 Corinthians 1, the main emphasis is the word of the cross. That, it is, that is, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And specifically, when we talk about the cross, we are referring to Jesus' death, to his atonement for sin, which in worldly terms is especially foolish. And so Paul says, well then, God has a foolish message. If you think this is foolish, then God has a foolish message. Now let's make a connection here between the previous passage and the next passage. So look at just verses 17 to 20 again. Verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? Jump down to verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now look down another paragraph to chapter 2. This is sort of finishes out this section. Just look at the first five verses of chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, 
For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That really is, this is the core issue that is dividing the church at Corinth here these days as Paul is writing. There is a, there's an unruly spirit uh, sort of permeating in the Corinthian church, and it is connected to their understanding of the, of the form of the communication of the gospel. They've picked their favorite preachers. We saw this a few weeks ago. We upped up in verse um, 12. Some are saying, I follow Paul. Others, Apollos. I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. All faithful, one of them is even Jesus, faithful men who are preaching the same message. But they're collecting favorite orators, favorite preachers. And they are dividing over it. Verses 10 to 17 tells us that there is a, there's a quarreling over who was the better, who was the more eloquent, who was the more polished, who was the more authoritative preacher. And Paul starts his counter-argument counter in verse 17 by emphasizing the, the form of the delivery. He says, I came preaching the gospel, but not with words of eloquent wisdom. Paul starts by emphasizing preaching rather than the content of the preaching. He gets to the content of the preaching quick. We talked about that last week. But he starts with how the message is delivered. Paul preached not like the world told him to. The world said, the prevailing wisdom of the day said, that public proclamation should be filled with eloquent wisdom. Do you know what the prevailing wisdom of today says? The prevailing wisdom of today says that people are visual learners. And so you need to use video clips. You need to use PowerPoint or some other form of visual aid, which is, which is all just glorified flannel graphs. A couple of you remember flannel graphs. Prevailing wisdom of today says that people have a short attention spans. And so keep your sermons to less than 20 minutes. And certainly don't bog them down with big theological words. The prevailing wisdom of the day says that you have to, you have, to have tweet-worthy quotes. You have to go off script and maybe even be provocative in a left-wing kind of way. Let me give you a technical term for what that is. Hogwash. <laughs> That's straight up worldly wisdom. Now, I'm sure there's something to that in a school classroom. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the power of God to save sinners. Now, we're going to come back to this in a minute, but do you know why Paul starts here? It's because of the message. As I said, the world sees the word of the cross. The world sees the, the, the atonement. The, word, the world sees Christ dying for sinners as foolish. We talked, I, I said this before, we talked about this extensively last week, but the word of the cross is the main emphasis of these verses. But, but consider for a moment the idea of justice. Justice is super popular these days. 
Justice says that the guilty pay for what they have done. And we say that we want that. We say that we want to see justice. Our society claims to call for, even for, clamor for justice to be served. But really, we want justice for everybody else. Because this is justice. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. That's justice. We don't really want justice. Not for ourselves. We want mercy. And we need mercy. Consider God's law in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die, for the wages of sin is death. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But what happened when they ate? What happened when Adam and Eve did eat of it? They received mercy. In fact, listen to Genesis 3.21. And this is after the curse. And it says this, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. There was a sacrifice to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. Something died to cover the sins of man. There was an atonement made. It was not a complete atonement. It was a payment deferred. In fact, the sins of God's people continued to grow. Just read through the rest of, read the next chapter of, of Genesis. The sins of God's people continue, of the people continued to grow. So much so that he established an entire sacrificial system to cover their sins, but it was just temporary. It wasn't enough. Hebrews chapter 10 tells us this, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, that is, the word of the cross, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And Paul tells us here, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The world looks at this message and and rejects it as utter folly. Utter foolishness. But the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. God has a foolish message that we call the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. God has a foolish, foolish message, which is hard to say. God has a foolish message that's summarized. Paul will summarize it in chapter 15. When he will say this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas and so many others. That Christ died for our sins, was buried, and was raised again on the third day. God is a foolish message that we call the gospel, and God is a foolish means of delivery. 
Look at verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. When it comes to evangelism, the modern church has become convinced that preaching doesn't work. Have you considered that? When it comes to evangelism, the modern church is convinced that preaching doesn't really work. And so instead, we either put on some sort of show that we call, uh, I don't even know if they even call it preaching anymore, or we have outreach events, we have block parties, we do street or door-to-door evangelism, but what does God's, word, God's own word actually say about this? Here's a sampling. We need to start with the Great Commission where evangelism is simply implied. Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Okay, we understand that. Go and make disciples. Or how about 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15? says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Be ready to tell people about Jesus. Now, certainly there are other passages that support individual Christians telling others about the good news of Jesus Christ. Maybe, maybe a verse like Acts chapter 8, verse 4, which says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word, as the church is scattered due to persecution. That might mean individuals, but it also might mean small groups of Christians that ended up being churches and continued to preach the word. But the English word evangelize, it's actually used, this, this is kind of nerdy of me, but it's actually used 61 times in the New Testament. And almost half of the time, it is translated simply as preach. The other half of the time, there's a few other random translations, but the other half of those 61 times, it's translated preach the gospel. Evangel is gospel. And almost every time it is being used, the scriptures tell us that either Jesus is doing it or the apostles are doing it or it's being done in the assembly of the saints. And even as we read of Paul telling Timothy to do the work of an evangelist in 2 Timothy 4 verse 5, we hear that, we hear that a certain way, don't we? We assume it means that Timothy should go door to door or that he should sit in coffee shops and chat with people about Jesus. Or that he should go out and get into the community and tell people about Jesus. But what it really means is do the work of one who preaches the gospel. Now, now don't get me wrong. I, I firmly believe that every Christian should be busy telling others about Jesus. But the primary biblical model of evangelism is preaching. And the content of the preaching is the word of the cross. Do you understand that the, the form preaching is integral to the message of the gospel. 
The form of the proclamation is part of the proclamation. This is why, if you use the English Standard Version that I have, this is why the ESV has, has such a hard time translating this verse 21, because it literally says, it pleased God through the folly of preaching to save those who believe. Now, we understand that it means preaching what we preach. It means preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. We understand that. Somebody has to tell you. This whole section is a response to the Corinthians picking their favorite preachers. Which one of them had the most lofty, or the loftiest speech and wisdom? But bookending Paul's response here, I read this at the beginning, bookending this, is that it's, Paul, is, Paul is emphasizing that it's not about being fancy. It's not about strong rhetoric or methods of persuasion on behalf of the one preaching. It's about preaching the gospel. Tell people of Jesus. The form is preaching and the content is the word of the cross. This is God's plan of building his church. It's not events. God's plan for building his church is the proclamation of the word of the cross. I'll put it this way. Preaching and the word of the cross are a matched set. The gospel that we have is a message that needs to be proclaimed. I've said this before. You cannot be the gospel. You have to say the gospel. You have to tell the gospel. Now, you can and you should do good works as a result of your faith. James tells us that faith without works is dead, but faith does not come by being or doing the gospel. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. It pleased God through the folly of preaching to save those who would believe. God has a foolish message and even a foolish means of delivery. He also uses foolish messengers. God uses foolish messengers. Look at verse 23 again. Just the very first phrase says, but we preach Christ crucified. We. This word preach there is not the same word, I just want to point this out, that we get the word evangelize from. I said that it is um, sometimes the word evangelize is translated as preach. That's not this word. Look up in verse 17, though, where it says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to evangelize, preach the gospel. That's what he says there in verse 17. That's the word evangelize, but here it's a different Greek word. It's actually the word herald, which means simply to proclaim or to announce. And a herald is one who announced on behalf of another. And here's the difference. The herald might announce good news, the gospel, the evangel, right? And he might announce bad news, judgment. In the ancient world, it looked like this. They would have understood uh, the, the metaphor of preaching. The men of the city had gone off to war. The women and children and the elderly waited back at home. Anxiously, they waited for the results of the word of the battle. Good news would mean great joy and celebration for the people. Their sons were coming home. Victory has been won. 
But bad news would mean distress and despair because it would mean that they would likely soon perish. That judgment was now coming for them as the invading armies marched on their town. A scout would be spotted or would spot a figure running over a hill toward the city. It was a herald bringing good news from the battlefield or bringing at least an announcement from the battlefield. And so as he approached, as they waited for this announcement, the townspeople would begin to to hear his proclamation. Would it be good news? Would it be evangelism? Good news, good news. We have overcome the enemy. We have won the victory. Or, Or would it be a message of judgment and death? Behold, vengeance is coming. The irony is that the word of the cross, this is why it's so foolish to the world, The word of the cross, judgment and death for the king, is good news for those who believe in him. Can you see why this message, the word of the cross, is foolish? Can you see why the world would look at the messengers as foolish? Because the message that they are announcing is good news, good news, the king has died. But he has also risen from the the dead. That's the second part of the announcement. He is risen. But again, the message does not originate with the herald. It originates from the risen king. Go tell them. One of the first New Testament preachers was John the Baptist. He would certainly be seen as a fool by the world, would he not? And he preached as one who was sent. In fact, Mark's gospel opens like this, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. God has a foolish message. And he has a foolish means of delivery. And he even uses foolish messengers to deliver it, to preach it. Paul himself will consider himself a fool for Christ later in the letter in chapter 4. He writes this same letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled we bless, when persecuted we endure, when slandered we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. But then in the next couple of verses after that, he flips it around. 
Because it's not about him. It's not about the preacher. It's not about the herald. Paul continues in the very next verse. He says, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere and in every church. God uses foolish messengers to teach us to be like Christ. And then finally, God gives this foolish message to foolish recipients. God gives this foolish message to foolish recipients. Pick it up there in the middle of verse 23. He has just said, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So think again of that herald running into town with his proclamation. The content of his message, the word of the cross, receives two different responses from two different hearers. The the preaching is either a foolish stumbling block or it is the power of God. The preached good news of Jesus Christ is either a foolish stumbling block, or it is the power of God. See, the message, the preached word of God, it requires a response. Listen to the response Paul got when he he preached in Acts chapter 17. Just the first couple of verses of that chapter. Now when they had passed through Amphilopolis and uh, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews and Paul went in as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous Taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring, him, bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received, received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Some listened to this foolish preacher with his foolish message, and they believed. But others rejected and accused. But what did Paul do? You know what Paul's response was there in Acts 17? It's actually the same thing he did as often as he could. He continued preaching. Because how can they hear unless somebody preaches? Think of these responses again. Think of those who rejected the message. They were blaming Paul for turning the world upside down with that message. That message that was just words. Turning the world upside down with words. And you know what? They were right. The gospel turned the world upside down, did it not? The good news of Jesus Christ turns the world upside down. They were right. 
The gospel has turned the world upside down. Some have have completely and steadfastly rejected Christ and his good news, and yet some have believed and are saved. I found this quote somewhere. I don't remember where. God means to kill a man before he gives him eternal life. After all that he has promised in Ezekiel 36, verse 26, consider this. God had said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is the good news, is that Christ gives us life. The content of the message is intended to either be destructive, actually, it first must be destructive. He has to take out that heart of stone. He kills the old man. It's important that you hear Jesus on this. In John chapter 3, he says this. It's verses 18 to 21. So remember John 3, 16. This is just two verses later. He says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The message of the gospel is intended to kill. It's intended to bring judgment. But it's also intended to save those who believe. Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. It's a foolish message on the lips of foolish preachers, and it's the power of God to save. A foolish message on the lips of foolish preachers who get their words mixed up, who have trouble with too many S's and perishing sounds. But the message is powerful to save. To save those who would believe because Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The form, preaching, and the content, the gospel, are both necessary to God's destructive and saving purposes. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. and The weakness of God is stronger than men. We should rejoice that Christ went to the cross. We should rejoice in the word of the cross, the foolish message. In John chapter 6, when Jesus started preaching um, about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, of course he was talking about consuming Christ, about being all in by Christ, about being immersed into Christ. John 6, 66, an easy verse number to remember, says that from that point on, people walked away. Many of his disciples stopped following him because it was hard to understand. Who can believe these things? Because it seems so foolish. But the word of the cross is the power of God. Let's pray. Father, as we As we consider this, I pray, Lord, that that we would believe the message that you have said to us. As we read it in your word, that we would believe that these are true. 
that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Father, help us to believe that it is true that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. To believe that it is true that the cross of Christ is powerful, that the word of the cross is, while it is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Father, help us to believe this. And as we consider the cross, as we consider Jesus going to the cross, as we think of him dying for our sins on behalf of us, as we come to the table, Lord, remind us that while this is foolish, it's not. It is the wisdom of God. It is glorious because you have so loved us that you sent Christ to breathe a propitiation for our sins, that we might become his righteousness. And so as we come to the table, Lord, it is our prayer that we would proclaim his death until he comes. Help us to remain steadfast in proclaiming this, the wisdom and power of God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.